Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, the Prime Minister versus the Premiers. This is moving the goalposts. This is not what we agreed to in the Vancouver Declaration. Unhappy Premiers accuse the Prime Minister of changing the goalposts on the carbon targets. But what more should the government do as the economy scores record growth numbers? We're joined by the point man on this issue, Minister Dominic LeBlanc, and also by a very unhappy Saskatchewan Premier, Scott Moe. Then, blast from the past. There's a word for this. It's called leadership. Was Brian Mulroney sending a not-so-subtle message to Donald Trump when he paid tribute to his dear friend and ally, George H.W. Bush? Brian Mulroney is here today to find out. And then, Chinese espionage? I can assure everyone that we are a country of uh, uh, an independent judiciary and the appropriate authorities uh, took the decisions in this case uh, without any political involvement or interference. After the Vancouver arrest of a top Chinese executive, is Canada now in the middle of a U.S.-China trade war and is the Chinese telecom giant Huawei a security risk to Canada? Former CSIS director Richard Fadden and John Manley, the former foreign affairs minister, weigh in on that. All that, plus the scrum, will dig into the raging debate on Canada's border security. Who is telling the truth about a new UN border agreement? This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. We have uh, differences of opinion on approaches. We have differences of opinion on uh, climate change, certainly. Uh, but I think Canadians expect uh, the Prime Minister to work with all premiers, <coughs> and that's exactly what I'm doing. Well, it was not a happy union from anger over the government's perceived abandonment of the oil sector or lack of help, to accusations that the federal government and Justin Trudeau moved the goalposts on their carbon target. Some of the premiers blasted Justin Trudeau when they met in Montreal on Friday. But what's actually fact and what's fiction? Let's find out. Joining me now, the Interprovincial Affairs Minister, Dominic LeBlanc. Minister LeBlanc, why did the government tell the provinces at the Friday meeting that they have to do more to reduce their carbon emissions, as many premiers allege the Prime Minister did? What we said, Evan, is something we've said from the beginning, that Canadians expect their governments to work collaboratively together to deal with the challenge of climate change. In 2016, all provinces and territories came together in a bottom-up process and agreed on some national objectives. And we think provinces need to respect those national objectives so that Canada as a whole can meet uh, its climate change commitments. Nothing has changed. That has been the case for the last two years. And I think the discussion uh, in Montreal on Friday uh, was very collaborative and focused on solutions, uh, much, much more than disagreements. Well, you say that, but let's just take, for example, in Ontario. Uh, Doug Ford has said he's got an environmental plan that will meet the federal government's Paris targets so you don't need to keep imposing your federal carbon solution. Then you got the environment minister says his plan's a failure and we're going to still impose it. So let me ask you, if they have a plan that works, why will your government still impose a price on carbon? Mr. Ford has submitted a plan which in no way meets uh, the requirements of that pan-Canadian approach. So he shouldn't be surprised because this has been known for a couple of years that if a province, if a jurisdiction doesn't have a plan that meets those basic national objectives, then the federal plan would apply. And that's going to be the case uh, on January 1st in Ontario. So th this is a recreation of something that Mr. Ford was talking about at the beginning of the summer, Evan. Uh, 
Minister Blanc, but you say it was collaborative and some people call it a success. How did your government say this was a useful meeting, for example, just on the price on carbon, when you've still got Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe who will join us, he's still taking the federal government to court on this. How do you call it a success if they're taking you to court over something? Evan, people can go to courts of appeal. Uh, provincial governments can submit reference cases on all kinds of questions. Uh, that doesn't surprise us. That doesn't uh, concern us. We'll obviously answer those objections in court. Going to a court of appeal with a black gown on and a big briefcase doesn't actually constitute a climate change plan. I've never heard a scientist say the most important thing we can do is show up and argue uh, for 90 minutes at a court of appeal. And Evan, the two provinces, the meeting took place in Quebec. Quebec has one of the most performing economies in the Canadian Federation. They have a cap and trade system, a price on pollution. Premier Horgan spoke eloquently about the economy of British Columbia, which is performing extraordinarily well. They've had for over a decade a price on pollution. So we don't think that the argument that you can't have an effective climate plan that includes a price on pollution and grow the economy and create jobs at the same time, uh, the idea that you can't do that, we think, is simply not borne out right. by the facts. Uh, to be fair, Minister LeBlanc, on one side you're chiding provinces for taking you to court about your price on carbon, and then you've got people taking you to court over your pipeline. You say you deeply respect the process there. So you either deeply respect the court process on one issue or on another. But let me talk to you quickly about the pipeline issue, because many premiers say that something called Bill C-69, the Impact Assessment Act, which is going to do environmental assessments on pipeline and natural resource pipelines, is basically a bill that will make sure no pipeline is ever built again. They want changes to that act, or they want the Senate to kill it. Will the government change or kill that act? No, the government's obviously not going to kill that legislation because we think that that legislation is essential, Evan, to improve uh, on the flawed process that Mr. Harper had since 2012. Uh, a number of premiers also indicated that the 2012 Stephen Harper environmental assessment in fact ensured that no pipelines uh, were properly built that would bring Canadian resources to new global markets. So we had uh, introduced legislation as we committed to do that would ensure that there's proper and serious consultation with Indigenous communities, rigorous science-based environmental assessments, that this would be done in an expeditious way, the timelines uh, would in fact uh, be much more reliable than the old Harper process. So killing the current legislation that's before the Senate would mean you'd go back we'll, to the okay, failed Stephen Harper approach, which in fact has contributed to these paralyzed uh, resource circumstances that Premier spoke about on Friday. And well, the Senate will, will study the legislation, and if the Senate uh, has some amendments that would improve the legislation, why wouldn't we look at them? So we've encouraged people who have concerns to share those with the Senate committee, and of course the government will look at ways to strengthen the legislation as part of the process that's currently before the Senate. Last question, Minister Blanc. Why no firm support for an oil sector that says it is in crisis? Why did you not use this meeting to say we will strongly help you buy more rail cars, strongly give more support for an industry? Not, I'm not talking about extending EI. That's support for people that's too late. I'm talking about support to help this industry grow. So obviously we're anxious to do everything we can, as you said, to support that industry in a sustainable way, to work with the government of Alberta. That was very clear in the conversation. The Prime Minister has said that publicly. My colleague Amarjeet Sohi has said that publicly. So we're, we're committed to talking about everything and anything that Alberta or other jurisdictions have in the way of suggestions to deal with this very serious 
a price differential. Premier Notley has put a number of ideas on the table. We will work expeditiously with her on those ideas. We didn't think it was responsible in the circumstances of a meeting today to make a decision as important as the purchase or not of, of rail cars with taxpayers' money, but we said we would have that conversation, understand the exact proposal, and continue to work with the Alberta government uh, on everything we can possibly do uh, to deal with that very serious price differential, which is having such a devastating impact, not only on the economy of Alberta, Evan, but on the economy of the whole country as well. Well, I, I agree with you on that, but we haven't had the concrete plan on that. But i got to leave it there today. Uh, Minister LeBlanc, great to have you on the program. I want to now bring in one of the premiers who is leading the charge against the price on carbon, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. Premier Moe, did the government try to shift the goalposts on carbon targets in the Friday meeting? Well, this was the first conversation I had heard about uh, targets being uh, shifted in, in certain areas of the nation and, uh, and it was a surprise to me. I go back to the Vancouver Declaration where all of the provinces uh, signed on to commit to do what they could to uh, help Canada and to ensure Canada would achieve its commitments in the Paris Accord. That's where Saskatchewan's at and will continue with our plan of prairie resilience as we always have. So that, that's where our province is. Okay, but uh, Dominic LeBlanc literally just told me that the government has not changed the goalposts. Who's telling the truth here? Well, with respect to the conversation we had in there, it was, it was quite evident that there was going to be areas of the nation that may have to, may have to do more as we try to achieve and, and uh, attempt to get to our, to our Paris commitments. That was news to me. That has uh, never been discussed before in any of the meetings I've been in as Environment Minister or as Premier. So as I, as I said, we have a plan in Saskatchewan that we've put forward. It's an effective plan with respect to emissions reductions and, and carbon sequestration. And it's a plan that we will stick to and we'll continue uh, moving forward with it tomorrow just like we were yesterday. Uh, Premier Mo, though, the government said this was very collaborative, they listened, but you're still taking the federal government to court over the carbon price. They dismissed that as unproductive. What's your message to the government on that? Well, it's absolutely necessary. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is nobody's disputing that we need, need to do better and we need to reduce our emissions across the nation. All premiers uh, seem to be in agreement. Uh, with that. Um, the mechanism on how we get there is where the discussion starts to diverge. We've always said it's provincial jurisdiction, the federal government should not be involved. Uh, that's what we are, uh, that's what, and a carbon tax in Saskatchewan just simply doesn't work. The federal government has accepted our climate change plan, our prairie resilience plan, and, and we feel uh, they should uh, not, not uh, attempt to impose a carbon tax on the people of the province. And then as long as they are trying to, um, we'll, be taking, we'll be proceeding with our reference case. Nonetheless, come April, Premier, there is going to be a price on carbon on your province in Ontario. What will you do then? What I've asked the federal government to do, and which they have not done to this point in time, is to respect the court system. In the same way they did with the TMX pipeline, uh, they should respect the court system and allow the court system some time to make a determination as to whether or not they even have the constitutionality to enact this carbon tax and they and they should uh, give that some serious thought they did it in the case of pipelines they should do it in the case of, of, of the carbon taxation attempt one of the big questions was you and other premiers wanted this federal government to change what's called bill c69 the impact assessment act some think it's a bill that will kill pipeline development forever in Canada the government says no it will ensure pipelines are built 
in the right way. Did you get any concessions from the government on that particular contentious bill? Let's be clear, in its current form, it will kill any, not only pipeline construction, but any industrial mining construction across the nation. There are amendments that need to be made to that bill, or the bill needs to be scrapped. We had some assurances from the Prime Minister and Minister McKenna today that they'll be looking and working with the provinces on, on different amendments and, uh, and, uh, and, su and suggestions and that we have actually submitted uh, in the days ahead. So we'll be, we'll be engaging uh, very vigorously over the course of the next number of days to ensure that that actually is the case. Um, but in its current form, uh, the bill will not work for Saskatchewan. All right, I got to leave it there. Very interesting meeting and a big fight still to come. Premier Scott Moore, thanks so much. Thank you, Evan. Coming up next was a former Canadian Prime Minister trying to send President Donald Trump a message about leadership when he gave a eulogy for George H.W. Bush. Coming up next, Brian Mulroney joins us. Stay right here with Question Period. In a very personal, very charming and powerful eulogy, Brian Mulroney paid tribute to his dear friend, George H.W. Bush. The two men were leaders at a critical juncture in history, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, the first war in the Gulf. They pushed hard for the NAFTA agreement. They signed the Acid Rain Accord. Brian Mulroney's speech revealed just how important the relationship between U.S. and Canada, Canadian leaders can and ought to be. What can today's leaders learn from that? Let's find out. Joining me now, the former Prime Minister of Canada, uh, Brian Mulroney. Uh, great to have you on the program. You've been widely and I think rightly praised for that extraordinary tribute to your, your dear friend. It seemed that you had a message there about leadership. Uh, what was in that so important about leadership and relationships that today's leaders might learn from your relationship with George H.W. Bush? Well, I was trying to use, thank you, Evan, for that. I was trying to use uh, the life of George Bush as a symbol of the excellence can be achieved uh, when um, leadership uh, prevails. And um, as Ronald Reagan used to say, it's amazing what you can achieve if you don't mind who gets the credit. And George Bush is finally getting credit for the extraordinary achievements of his long career. I wanted to underline that and hope that that notion of leadership uh, gets out elsewhere because without it, it's pretty hard to achieve major things. Uh, Mr. Mulroney, you know, I mean, you're as astute a political watcher as anybody I've ever met. Uh, you were standing in front of an array of presidents, but there was the current president, George uh, Donald Trump, who you know as well. Uh, the leadership relationship between this president and the current Canadian Prime Minister is not Mulroney-Bush. Were you trying to send a message in a subtle way uh, to the future as well as talking about the past? Not really, but I wanted to, to for example, convey to anyone who chose to listen uh, that George Bush's achievements uh, were, came about as a result of uh, hard work and vision and courage and not this nonsense so embedded in our politics today about popularity polls. Who cares about the Gallup poll when you're on a mission uh, to do things for the United States and Canada? For example, I've always thought, and I, I've said a number of times, uh, that um, leadership, uh, the requirement is not to look for easy headlines in 10 days, but to look for a better Canada in 10 years. And that's often at conflict with 
these public opinion polls. But you've got to do what is right for Canada, even if it you know, brings you some heartache or a lot of heartache from time to time. Ultimately, when history looks at this 25 or 30 or 50 years from now, they are going to, history will come down on the side of those who tried to better the situation of all Canadians, not who tried to leave with high popularity ratings. That's what's happened to our politics now. But, I mean, think about that. I remember when you and George Bush signed the acid rain accord. This was basically a cap and trade agreement that has been working and one of the most effective ever. But look at today. There's not a single conservative leader who supports, for example, putting a price on carbon or a cap and trade or a tax. Let me ask you on that one, because you're the former conservative prime minister. Is the current batch of conservatives missing the boat, for example, on the environmental file? Well, I'm not going to get into any specific policies because I'm no longer there and I'm not familiar with the day-to-day -day operations. But um, the founder of our party, Sir John A. Macdonald, uh, used to say that uh, the word conservative, and he was the leader of the Conservative Party, suggests a special love of the environment. And our responsibility is to protect the environment. That is an important dimension of public policy, and it's a vital dimension, I think, of any conservative uh, government in, in its policy. So uh, generally, that would be my position on it. Well, the, on the other side of the equation, I mean, I can read between the lines there, a pretty, pretty interesting message to Andrew Scheer. On the other side, you've got an issue on leadership for Justin Trudeau or anybody else on pipelines. There's an issue that, again, may run into that, that popularity as you talk about versus national interest um, on pipelines you're seeing this again is that something that he's got to put his shoulder to and use what you say leadership more when he's looking at you know he's just coming off that meeting with the premiers is that a moment where he needs to show leadership well look we have 175 billion barrels of oil in the grounds of alberta and saskatchewan and uh, the alternative is either to leave it there untouched for hundreds of years or to develop it in a rational, thoughtful way. And I have thought and said that this is so important for Canada. We can't kick Western Canada when it's down. We have to help them up and build with them. And they need pipeline capacity, west, east and south, energy east and so on. Well. I think that uh, one of the ways to consider doing it is to bring in the environmentalists and the aboriginal leaders and the affected provinces, their premiers, and sit down with a plan for the development of these tremendous resources to, in order to benefit the stakeholders, in order to benefit all Canadians. And I would lay out, a, I think a plan could be laid out for them, and if they accepted it, then we're all way ahead of the game. And if the answer is no, that's where leadership comes in. And I'll bet you a dollar to a donut. If leadership were shown by whomever, and it was brought about in a general election, the issue being the development of Western Canada's resources to the benefit of the entire nation, as I said, I'd bet you a dollar to a donut that they would win with the same degree of success and effectiveness as we had in 1988 over the issue of free trade. Mr. Mulroney, I appreciate it very much for you joining us. Thanks so much for talking about the lessons. I thought it was almost like an instruction manual for the future as you paid tribute to the past. Mr. Mulroney, thanks so much.
Thank you, Evan, very much. Coming up in the program, Canada in the crosshairs. A top Chinese executive was arrested in Vancouver for extradition to the U.S. China is now lashing out. Is Canada getting caught in a trade war between the U.S. and China? The former head of Canada's top spy agency, Dick Fadden, and the former foreign affairs minister, John Manley, join us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Canada has suddenly been thrust into the center of the U.S.-China trade war and allegations that China is using its companies to spy on other countries. The U.S. asked Canada to detain and extradite chief financial officer of China's biggest telecom company, Huawei, because of an alleged violation of the Iran sanctions. This was massive. That's because Meng Wanzhou is no ordinary business person. She's also the daughter of the founder of Huawei. I means she's a national hero in China. Not only that, Canada's already under pressure to stop Huawei from having anything to do with Canada's next generation of wireless technology. It's called 5G. Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. have already banned Huawei from being part of that. Should Canada be doing business with Huawei? To find out, I'm joined now by Dick Fadden, Canada's former head of CSIS, uh, that's the spy agency, and the former national security advisor, both to Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau. And I'm also joined by John Manley, the former, gosh, there's a lot of titles, foreign affairs minister, industry minister, and finance minister. Gentlemen, great to have you on the program. Thank you, good to be here. Let's, <laughs> let's take start with the espionage uh, mm-hmm. allegations and work backwards. Should, just off the top, because this raised these concerns, should Canada follow suit with Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S., and ban Huawei from having anything to do with the next generation of wireless, the 5G network? Well, I think Canada should, but let me take a step backwards. I think it's beyond reasonable debate. All Western countries recognize that China has a different approach to acquiring intelligence and information abroad. It's what we call spying. So there is an issue there with China generally. There's an issue with large Chinese corporations who have real links with the Chinese government. So I would say uh, that our current approach, which is to say that we can establish conditions, monitor and review, is not good enough. It may be true today, but if we do only this and impose conditions, it seems to me that over time we're giving the Chinese security agencies an opportunity to work around our defenses. And once Huawei is in, we'll never get them out. But, and as people who work with Huawei have said, they said, oh, we've been in Canada for years. We work with lots of different companies, but they say we're not a state-owned enterprise, so you can't confuse us with that. But can we? What are the rules in China regarding any massive company like Huawei? Well, it's not just any massive company. There's a Chinese law which says unambiguously, any Chinese citizen and any Chinese company must respond to requests by Chinese security agencies. Now, am I suggesting that every company and every Chinese person on the planet is acting on behalf of the Chinese security companies? No, I'm not. Huawei, on the other hand, is operating in what the Chinese call a strategic sector. It's a real interest of the Chinese state. I would be very surprised. In fact, I believe they're acting as an agent of the Chinese state, and we have to be careful as a consequence. The politics of this, John, and this is something that goes back into your field, the, when Canada's asked to extradite someone of that importance to the United States in the midst of heavy-duty tensions between China and the U.S., what are the geopolitical consequences? I'm thinking Canada's caught in the middle here and is about to get nastily sideswiped. There, there are some things that we don't know in the sequence of events. The Prime Minister has stated that he was informed. Not quite clear to me when he actually was informed. 
If you strictly go by our international obligations, we do have an extradition treaty with the United States. The request was made in the proper form, and therefore we have an obligation to respond as we have done. That's right. Um, I, it's possible that this would have been um, a good case for what you might call creative incompetence. <laughs> Uh, this woman was not residing in Canada. She was simply transferring flights uh, in Canada. And uh, we might have just missed her. Wow. And uh, Just to avoid being caught in the well, middle? Well, is that why? Let me why? tell you, that, well, being caught in the middle, th this, is, this is a big deal. The worry that I have uh, really on this, Evan, is, is Canada has found over the last two years that we have an unreliable economic partner south of the border. We've never been, in my view, as alone in the world as we are now. And we need China entirely for economic reasons. China is the way we validate the policy of diversification of our trade and economic interests. There's no other choice. We're, we're not going to diversify with, with these booming trade routes to Vietnam or or Brunei. It's China is the second largest economy in the world. We need to have our own China policy driven by our own national interests. And unfortunately, we've caught our, we've got ourselves caught in a situation where our China policy is being very much fashioned by uh, some hardliners in Washington. It's not good for us. I agree with what John's saying that we need a China policy. Uh, but we were chatting before the the event here and. Uh, I was saying that I can remember sitting through the efforts of three governments to come up with a China policy. It's very, very difficult for us to do because I think we need a commercial and trade element, we need a security element, and we need a strategic political element. And given the environment that John is describing, that's almost impossible. So in the context of this Meng issue, I think it's important to say to your viewers, this is a mechanical process. I mean, John implied it. There is a request. A Department of Justice official did some forms. An arrest took place. Ministers and senior, senior officials have nothing to do with it. It's so just the extradition treaty, yeah, I understand. We're caught by the rule of law and the fact that we have an independent judiciary. Yeah, but politics doesn't care about the details sometimes. What If you were the national security advisor, knowing what's going on, what would you say now? Uh, I would say we would have to be as clear as we possibly can that we have an independent judiciary, that governments have nothing to do with this, get Ms. Ming to hire the best lawyers she can, and ensure that every courtesy that the law allows is extended call in officials from the Chinese government and explain this to them until your back teeth float. But there is nothing that can practically be done once it's before the courts. It is. You okay, yeah. so what's the re warning fight? Because the market's melted down on this yeah, happening and everybody uh, sees this as the beginning, the little powder keg that's lit that may derail any kind of uh, detente between the Chinese and the U.S. on the economic front. Well, the, right, the markets are right to worry about it. We, we don't know what the end game is for the United States mm -hmm. here. But personally, I don't understand why they would want this person in their jurisdiction and before their courts. It's horrendously difficult to see how they work their way out of this and what exactly they want from it. What was, this happened the same day as the President of the United States and the President of China were meeting. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. and, and, and ostensibly, I mean, the markets rallied after that because President Trump came out and said, well, we've solved it. We've solved it. He must have known what was happening in Canada at that moment in time. It was at his government's request. And you've just got to wonder whether anybody has a plan. Huh. 
Does anyone really know what's going on in the White House? That's an interesting question. No one does. <laughs> there are I books being written about that. <laughs> I'm trying to figure that out. Listen, very consequential. John Manley, Dick Fadden, great to have both of you on the program. We should also say that John Manley sits on the board of TELUS and CTV is owned by Bell Media, important in any discussion about telecom. But coming up next, who were the big winners and losers after that contentious meeting between the Prime Minister and the Premiers on Friday in Montreal? The Scrum weighs in on that next. Stay right here on Question Period. On the issue of climate change, uh, I think it's clear that uh, Premier Ford and I uh, differ on the matter. Um, I believe that we need to put a price on pollution and help Canadians uh, through this change. It's not right and it's not fair. We're going to keep our side of the bargain and I just want the Prime Minister to keep his side of the bargain. Well, the best you can say is that they agreed to disagree on the key issues. For example, on the idea that there should be help for the troubled oil patch sector, no concrete plans from the federal government. On the price on carbon, still deep divisions. In fact, some premiers are accusing the federal government of changing the carbon targets. So, in an election year, what are the biggest challenge for all the federal parties, including the government? Let's find out. To talk about the issues at this head-to-head -head meeting, let's bring in the scrum. Tonda McCharles is a reporter with the Toronto Star. Bob Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. Craig Oliver is CTV's chief political commentator, young cub reporter, and our special guest today is a lecturer in journalism and media at Rutgers University and the strategic director for the Leap Manifesto, of course, Avi Lewis. He is in uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey. Good morning to all of you. Uh, let me just start with this, and Ton, I'll start with you on, on this meeting. Uh, look, the premiers and the prime minister met. It was a lot of political theater. The premier said they're very unhappy. No real substance comes out of it. Um, is Trudeau in the right not to come out with some substantive plan to help what the Western premiers want, help premiers in the West with the oil situation? Look, I think the problem for Trudeau in the last several weeks around the West has been uh, that on the one hand he called it a crisis and then yet did nothing, his government did nothing in the economic update and he seems to still be somewhat tone deaf to it. Um, you know, uh, refusing at the outset to sort of change their agenda and then saying, oh, we'll talk about whatever you want. But in the end they came out, Bill Morneau had nothing to say either when he came out. So uh, I'm sure it's a bit of a, a well, a huge disappointment for Notley and th those in the West, but he's losing allies, right? He has to give them something or he's lost Alberta well, he's and his carbon tax lose the allies anyway. They're conservatives. They, have, yeah. they don't want a truck trade. No, Notley's not a conservative, and no, he's she lost isn't, her, but, and he's what a, lost But, you know, the problem we have is we haven't heard anybody... Hold on, let, let, me get, let me go with Bob. Bob, go ahead. What we haven't heard from anybody out west is concrete ideas that the federal government could help. The only thing we've had is buy more rail cars, buy rail cars which yeah. uh, doesn't make a lot of sense because if you get a pipeline built, it takes a long time for these rail cars to come in to be bought and purchased and brought. So a couple of years from now, they may not be necessary. So it's, it's very, very difficult. Always. It's, the same, it's, it's, it's never changed. Rachel Notley is just the new patron saint of the corporate welfare bums. They just throw, they just want more public money. Four and a half billion dollars handed right over to Kinder Morgan wasn't enough political, uh, wasn't enough purchase of political capital. So now it's what, 7,000 rail cars and 80 locomotives as a stopgap? 
when do we stop pouring money into industries that we need to be transitioning and start actually building programs that will put people back to work in the future and not the past? Craig. Could they talk about that at a first minister's meeting some, instead of finger puppet kabuki for crying out loud? Some, sometimes <laughs> I think uh, Trudeau is kind of at war with himself on all of these issues. For instance, look at the trouble he got in uh, out west when he suggested that we may have to be thinking in terms of phasing out the tar sands. In other words, it, it's true, we're going to have to get used to the idea of a post-carbon world, and it's coming on us fast. Uh, the problem is the public just isn't buying it, and the longer we wait, the steeper well, the climb well, look, and the bigger real the lives at risk. Right, right. People okay, are go ahead, Bob. Bob yes. Because uh, let's talk about that. Because you, if you talk to Rachel Notley and Scott Moe and many others, not only is it about the anti-carbon price that Tonda's talking about, but they also talk about this figure: eighty million dollars a day we're losing, billions of dollars a year, money that is contributing to the rest of Canada's economy. Rachel Notley likes to say the uh, per capita Alberta contributes over five thousand dollars net to the to the federal government. That goes into hospitals and education. That's her line. What do you well, make of that? Well, look, it's true that Alberta has provided and to, to the have-not provinces a lot of money, billions and billions of dollars, because the economy, when it was very strong, because of our oil revenues. That is true. I don't know the exact figure, and I wouldn't rely on the oil industry to tell you what the figure is, but it is significant, and they are hurting. I mean, you only have to go downtown street in Calgary to see all the shops that are closed. So the go governments have to figure out a way to help these people who are suffering right now. I haven't heard any really concrete ideas from any of the premiers about how Ottawa because can really that, help these people. That, that's because all they want to do is double down on the old system. That $80 million a day, which just a month ago she was saying $40 million a day, it just doubled overnight. I don't know if you guys got a chance to ask the premier about that, is illusory. It's a sham. It's based on a single study by Scotiabank, which assumes that every single barrel of oil in Alberta is subject to the price differential between heavy and light crude. And in fact, only 20% of them are. So the whole manufactured crisis is just that. And the problem is that they, we do have genuine crises that we need to deal with. We're coming off a fall where the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has told the governments of the world, we've got 12 years to cut our global emissions almost in half if we're to avoid truly catastrophic costs as well as damages in the climate crisis. Why on earth are we not talking about that? Why are we are our headlines dominated day after day by a manufactured a, that's, crisis that's, in Alberta? That's a complete overstatement of the case. That is being talked about of daily the, of on the, the global floor of the climate House of science, Commons. Of the climate science, the environment minister is out there talking about it every day. I think that there is a, a, an awareness talking about in this it is not the same as doing I, well, anything. Look, I think can't. that I think is I think there Tonda. is an awareness and efforts underway to address it um, but I don't I think it is perhaps unrealistic to think that uh, that transition out of a resource-based economy in this country in the northern hemisphere is going to happen within 12 years this is a big issue Bob just get that quickly at the raw politics of this because Justin Trudeau boy did this first minister's meeting ever shine a light on time when he gets into office three years ago it's like a meeting of everybody's red on or onside right. except for Bradwell and Saskatchewan right. this time it was a, a meeting of people who don't like his price on carbon, don't like what he's doing on natural resources. He can't win on the left, he can't win on the right. What's the raw politics well, I don't of this? Well, I don't think uh, it's going to hurt the, the Liberals that much because they're putting money back in people's pockets. They're not mm -hmm. taking it and giving it to governments to spend. You're going to get the money back, and they're going to get the money back before they vote. So I don't think that the, uh, that the Liberals are going to be hurt 
by that very much. And, and uh, you know, the conservatives who are whining and complaining about the carbon tax, they're not putting any money in anybody's pocket. And the raw politics of it are also affected by spectacular jobs numbers. The economy in Canada is still, relatively speaking, doing very well. And, you know, that will be a huge boost to Justin Trudeau's political fortunes, especially if the NDP and the conservatives don't have better alternatives well, on offer. Well, Avi, talk Guys, about better alternatives. This, this, this is, is the alternative you've been pushing. What is the alternative that you've been pushing? If, if, if this is a preview of the election conversation, then guys, we're screwed. Because we're going to argue about a totally insufficient policy, the carbon tax, which could be some small part of what we actually need to do. Now, Tonda, you've said that it's you unrealistic. You should run for yeah, office, Run for office and years. pitch it as a platform, the man. The scientists, the scientists of the world have told the governments of the world that in order to prevent the most catastrophic uh, uh, consequences of the climate crisis, we require, and I'm quoting, rapid, far-reaching, and unprecedented changes in all aspects of society, energy, land, transport, buildings, and industry within the next 12 years. So you'll walk, so you'll, you'll you'll walk to New Jersey. You will take a hike to New Jersey. You'll yeah. hitchhike. Leave Donald Trump's America. Come back home. Run for office. Put your why, ideas into practice. This is why you see the electric excitement of the young people in the United States who are demanding a Green New Deal a wartime level of mobilization that actually addresses the jobs crisis, the crisis right. for migrant workers across our countries, the crisis for people who are being thrown out of work, the crisis of corporate welfare where we're pouring billions of dollars into these failing industries and we're not actually helping people or transitioning as a society. It's all, all there right. in front of us. Okay. We need political leadership with a little courage. Well, Ooh, that well like that's what we're asking you for. Well, okay, I gotta wrap it up here. <laughs> that was a call to arms. From New Jersey? Ah, oh, Tommy Lewis. All right. I mean, great to have you there. New Jersey's very revolutionary place. All right, interesting. Here, it's, you know, there's, it's a backdrop like any other. He, he, took the, he took the leap south for a while. Coming up, uh, is Canada giving up control of its borders to the UN? The scrum returns with special guest former immigration minister Chris Alexander. What is fact? What is fiction? We'll separate the two. Coming up next. Stay with us. We strongly oppose Justin Trudeau's plan to sign Canada on to the UN Global Compact on Migration. It gives influence over Canada's immigration system to foreign entities. It attempts to influence how our free and independent media report on immigration issues. And it could open the door to foreign bureaucrats telling Canada how to manage our borders. Well, the immigration debate caught fire again after the Conservatives accused the Liberal government of signing away Canada's sovereignty over the border. Now, Canada is poised to sign on to something called the UN Global Compact on Security. That's an agreement to help deal with the migrant crisis around the world. But here are the facts. It is a non-binding agreement. It has no legal authority. Nonetheless, Andrew Scheer and U.S. President Donald Trump, among others, have all refused to sign it. Is this fear-mongering, or does this agreement actually meant to send a chill down the backs of legitimate critics of Canada's border policy? To talk about that and the alleged security threat posed by China's biggest telecom company, Huawei, the scrum is back. Tonda McCharles is back. Bob Fife is back. Craig Oliver is back. And our special guest this round is the former Conservative Immigration Minister, Chris Alexander. And we'll start with you, Chris. Uh, welcome back. Uh, you said that Andrew Scheer is factually incorrect about the Global Compact. Um, what does he have wrong about this? 
Well, I think it's factually incorrect to say that it's a treaty or an agreement that would have any legal force whatsoever. And it's factually incorrect to say that it would undermine our sovereignty. Um, this is a political declaration. We can take it or leave it, as can all other countries. Uh, but we should take it because when you look at the 23 objectives, they read like a checklist of the things Canada has done in recent decades to win a place in the eyes of the world as basically the model and the example of how to manage immigration well. Now, we have some issues right now, but if you look at the big picture, we are uh, the lodestar. We are the country that does these things best. Uh, and, and we should be promoting these best practices elsewhere in the world because when other countries get it right and there's less irregular migration, less fraud, less rule breaking, that's good for Canada and it's good for the global economy on which we depend. I think that the idea that Scheer has pushed in the Commons this week that it somehow binds our hands is misleading. Um, whether there are some other concerns in there about stifling debate and whatnot, perhaps that's, that's an arguable point, but the fact is it doesn't have the force of law. But I thought that the over-the-top uh, criticisms that Mr. Scheer was making also tell me that he's ready in the election campaign to appeal to the kind of concerns and fears uh, unnecessarily, in my view, that a lot of Canadians do feel about uh, around the whole migration issue. But the worrisome thing here, to Craig's point, is that the Conservatives think that this is a good strategy to try to incite fears among Canadians about their the millions of migrants are going to be coming to our shores. And, and they better be careful because they tried that line last election campaign and they got clobbered for it. Well, but Chris, Chris Alexander, you were on Chris the front. Look, you that. were the sharp end of the stick on that, yeah. and it was widely seen as something that did not help uh, your party. Is, is, is Andrew Scheer making a tactical political error here? Well, first, everyone's right. Uh, there is a very demagogical push out there, not originating in Canada, originating outside, to portray this compact as... Uh, as a, a secret plan for mass migration around the world. And that is simply not the case. That is propaganda, that is disinformation, uh, and responsible people in Canada, leaders in Canada, shouldn't be pushing that agenda at all. In fact, we should be standing against it, standing up for regular, orderly, and safe migration, which is good for everyone, good for the global community, and certainly good for Canada. There is no country that has drawn more benefit from orderly, rule-based, legal immigration than this country, and also from being generous to refugees over the long term. That's what this uh, compact seeks to bring to a much larger group of countries so that we all share best practices, so that we don't have uh, the, 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 the disasters of the last few years with the migration crisis in Europe and elsewhere. All right, uh, I want to move on to another issue, the security issue and China. The U.S. has asked Canada to detain, Canada did, then extradite the CFO of China's biggest telecom company, Huawei. Now remember, this is the daughter of the founder of the company. She is a celebrity in China. The Chinese are furious. Bob, you broke the story. Uh, there's a couple of elements. First of all, is Canada now, because of our legal obligation and a treaty, drawn into a very dangerous uh, US-China trade war? Absolutely. I mean, as you heard with uh, Mr. Manley and, and, and Fadden in the earlier part of the program, there is a global war going on now between the United States and Beijing. It's a trade war and it's a big war over national security involving Huawei. We're stuck right in the middle of this. The Americans are telling us, you ban Huawei from 5G technology and you arrest the corporate royalty 
the founder's daughter, and we are now stuck in this. China's furious at us. The Americans are saying, you better, you better uh, bar Huawei, because if you don't, we're going to cut off intelligence to you. So we don't really have a lot of choice here. I want to go to Chris Alexander. Chris, obviously, you spent a lot of time at the UN. John Manley said that Canada's foreign policy is now being run by hardliners in Washington. We want to trade with China, but we basically have to do Washington's bidding on this. What do you make of that? I, I, I think it's <clears throat> going too far to call them hardliners in Washington. There's a consensus on this issue among Republicans and Democrats that the uh, see no evil, hear no evil, uh, blind faith that was shown when China was admitted to the World Trade Organization in 2001 needs to be revisited. Uh, there hasn't been an even playing field for Western countries in China. China is not evolving towards human rights and the rule of law the way everyone hoped it would. Uh, and Huawei is uh, not a normal private sector company. It is connected to the state. Yeah. The state operates through it. And there's a big intelligence operation underway, economic espionage and otherwise, against Canada and other states. That has cost us. It's cost us in telecoms. It's cost us in other sectors. We need to be careful here. And we don't want to be an outlier. Uh, in the Five Eyes community, in the alliances and intelligence sharing community on which we've depended throughout our history. Bob. Look, this is not a Trump administration move here. Six chiefs of the U.S. Foreign Intelligence, or intelligence Services have identified Huawei as a national security test. Bilaterally, in the United States, Democrats and Republicans on the Intelligence Committee say it is a national security risk. New Zealand, Australia. Mm -hmm. New Zealand, Australia, and now the, now the Great, now great the Britain's MI6 guy right. is saying it is. And so Japan. This, and Japan has now joined it. So it is not, definitely not, a Trump administration thing. But, you know, Mr. Manley's got a reason to say this. I, he's also a board member of TELUS, and That's TELUS right. does not want to have Huawei banned because it's going to cost them a lot of money to pull out that equipment. But in this process, we're being put under tremendous pressure by the Americans who really want to press and weaken our sovereignty. And I think we're going to have to start asking ourselves this question. Can we any longer rely on the Americans uh, in terms of trade, security, uh, to protect our interests and to be a reliable ally? And I'm not sure we can. All right. I got to leave it there. I think we're at the beginning of what I mean, this, this could be the fuse that lights a much bigger powder keg. We hope mm -hmm. not, but certainly has that potential. A ton of Bob, Craig and Chris Alexander, great to see all of you guys on the program. That's all we've got for you today. Thanks for watching and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Man, these have been busy political weeks. We will see you back here, though, in seven short days.